Well, I want you guys to imagine something with me. I want you to imagine something. You're in a fairly large room, much larger than this one. The air is stiff. It's a little musty. The room has a stale, cold feel to it. There's lots of people congregating. They're talking. You can hear a mob of voices. There's lots of conversations and chatting. But you just can't seem to really pick up on what anybody's saying. Through the cacophony of voices in the room, you hear a door behind you open. And by this, I'm sorry, and uh, the crowd of noise begins to kind of taper off. Less and less you hear the sound of talking more and more. You hear the sound of footsteps clacking across a hard floor. It's not long before you look up and see a man step into your line of sight. And by this point, the room is completely silent. Everyone else is sitting down, and you then make out the sound of the chair next to you scuff against the hard floor as the man pulls it backwards. He takes his seat and places a briefcase on the table in front of him. And you hear the distinct pop of each one of the locks as he opens this briefcase. And you can then hear the unmistakable rustle of papers inside. He clears his throat and he sniffles a couple of times. And so then you turn your gaze to his face. And you pick out a serious and troubled look. He's concerned. And you zoom in and you can see a little bit of sweat that's glistening on the top of his forehead. He looks a bit disheveled and out of sorts, but he's otherwise presentable, what with he's wearing a suit and a tie and all. But then you kind of hear another door open, and this time it's in front of you. And you see a group of people walking in a single file line into the room. No one's smiling. No one's talking. They're just shuffling their way into the room one by one. Each one takes a seat not too far in front of you. And a third door opens. And this one's also in front of you next to the second door. A woman walks through. And this woman looks like she could be about 50 years old or so. And she's wearing black. And she sits down too. And as the room continues to circulate, the silence, save maybe for a few coughs and some, uh, some fidgeting from people in, in their seats, the woman in black finally breaks the silence. Has the jury reached a verdict? A woman from among the group that just walked in stands to her feet and states without any emotion, we have, Your Honor, the jury finds the defendant guilty. Guilty. The man in the suit sitting next to you turns to you and puts his hand on your shoulder. And he looks like he wants to say something, but after what seems like an eternity, he says nothing. Nothing. Instead, he just reshuffles his papers. He sets them down into his briefcase. He shuts the lid. He snaps the locks back in place. And then you hear the unforgettable sound of his chair scuffing against the hard floor, followed by the rhythmic clicking of his shoes as he begins to make his way back the same way he entered the room. Your heart sinks. You are the defendant found guilty. The scene I just described for you is most obviously that of a courtroom. It's a courtroom. I, it's a picture of uh, that, while it's maybe imaginary for our purposes right now, it's a real occurrence that happens on a regular basis for many people. The fate of one person changes in an instant all the time. 
Someone's world gets turned upside down. And court has the unique power to change your human destiny. It does. None of you have had to go through this to my knowledge. I don't think any of you, any of you have had to sit through a court and your life has been on the line. I myself have never had to sit in the defendant's seat and try to defend my life before a judge, jury, or prosecutor. But just because you don't have any experience with any human legal system doesn't mean that you've never been, uh, never stood trial. Each one of you has stood trial before. Just because you've never had a human prosecutor sue you for a crime doesn't mean you've never been accused. And just because you've never sat nervously in the defendant's chair as your life hangs in the balance doesn't mean your fate's never been in question. And just because you've never heard the judge's gavel slam down on the block like that, except a lot louder, doesn't mean you've never been given a sentence before. Every single person in this, in this room, every single person in the world is on trial right now. Right now. But your trial isn't before a human court. You're in the middle of a trial before a divine court. A divine court. You're on trial before God. Every single one of you. There's no exception to this whatsoever. You can't pretend this doesn't exist. No matter how much you try to ignore it. You can't wiggle your way out of this. No matter how many excuses you may make. And you can't beat the system. You can't sway the jury. You can't bribe the judge or, or find some kind of magical loophole. No matter how hard you try, no matter how hard, no matter how clever you may be, you must stand trial before God. You must give an account. And, and the charge brought against you isn't one, isn't for one particular crime in your life. It's not for one isolated moment that you can chalk up to some mistake. It takes into account everything you've ever done. Every deed, every action, every crime you've ever committed. And, and what's more, this charge brought against you moves beyond what human courts can investigate. Human courts can only try you for what you've done, what they can investigate. But God's court tries you for what you've done and what you've thought. Everything you've thought. It's a spiritual trial that takes into account your thoughts and your motives and your will and your desires, everything a part of your inner person, your heart. Make no mistake, God's courtroom conducts a thorough investigation of both your body and your soul. Every single one of you has to go through this intense screening process. You're required to put up with this intense scrutiny from God. And every single one of you will 100% of the time come out on the other end with the same verdict. Guilty. Guilty. You can't escape that sentence. Every single one of you are guilty, and there's nothing you can do about it. Romans 3.10 may be familiar words to you. There is no one righteous, not even one. Not one. James 2.10 forever keeps the whole law, and yet stumbles at one point. He becomes guilty of all. Guilty. You can be an upstanding citizen all your life and commit just one crime, one crime, and it can sentence you to death before a human court. What makes you think God's law works any different? And it's more intense. It, 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 it pursues the soul. 
Over the next few days, we're going to take a trip through law and order. And we're going to conduct our own investigation about the investigation that's going on with each one of us. We need to know more about this trial because we stand guilty before the righteous judge who decides our eternal fate. The theme of this camp is justify. Justify. And you may not know what that word means, let alone how to define it. That's okay. We need to talk about justify because this word, justify, is your only hope to reversing the awful verdict of guilty. It's the only way you can get this reversed. You need to be justified. You need what the Bible calls justification. The act of being justified. Justification is an essential doctrine of the Christian faith. It's an important truth that sets at the core of what we believe. And so you must know what justification is. You must be able to define it. You must be able to explain why, uh, how it works and why it's important. And by the end of the week, after you head home, I should be able to come to your house and startle you out of bed and ask you at 3 in the morning, what is justification? And you should be able to rattle it off. Justification, blah, 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 And, like, you should know it. Backwards and forwards. That's my goal for you this week. Because it's a big deal. It's a big deal. So our mission over the next few days is very simple. We want to uncover the meaning of justification. And to do this, I want to take three messages out of our time together with you to construct one simple sentence. Three messages to construct one simple sentence. A definition of justification. That's what I want to give you, a sentence that's a definition of justification. So we're not going to learn the def definition all at once tonight. I want to reveal it to you in these three parts, okay? For three messages. So we'll build this as we go. And maybe you can kind of keep a spot in your notes where this definition is, is going to go. You can kind of fill it in as we go along over the next few days, okay? So we're going to look at three parts of justification over the course of three messages. And by the time we're done, you can put all three parts together in the order I give them to you, and you'll have a basic definition of justification and a good idea of what it's about. So let's begin and let's put the first part of our definition down. Now, I'm hoping to be able to have a TV in here at some point, and I'm actually going to have a PowerPoint to be able to display a lot of this so you can write this down. It'll be helpful for you. But unfortunately, there's no TV in the room right now, so I can't do that. But this shouldn't be hard to follow. But here's the first part to our definition, okay? So if you're writing down, you can write this down. Justification is an act of God. Justification is an act of God. It's, a, it's God's work. It's his job. It's his project. That's all I want you to know about our, our definition tonight. It's just, it's an act of God, okay? And I could give you a textbook explanation of how justification's an act of God, but I think it's better to see it in 3D. You know, it's, rather than see it in something in 2D, isn't it better to see it in 3D? I mean, video games are much better in 3D, aren't they? Rather than 2D, like the basic Mario, where you can only go from one part of the screen to the other, and then you play like, you know, I don't know, What's, what's the latest game? You can play Pokemon Go, and you're literally 3D walking around everywhere, right? So let's look at something 3D. I want to look at an example 
of justification being an act of God. And so that example is going to be in Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15. So go ahead and turn your Bibles in there. And we're going to look at Genesis chapter 15 as an example of justification being an act of God. And um, before Abraham was known as Abraham, do you guys remember what his name was? What was it? Abram. That's right. It's Abram. Abram means father of ram or basically exalted father, okay? Um, And... Uh, but then God changed his name to Abraham. And Abraham ba- means father of many nations, father of, of many peoples, okay? And this is because of what God promises Abram in our story here in Genesis 15. God promises to give him a son who will produce for him many descendants, an entire nation of people. So let's read verses 1 through 6 so we can see what's going on here, okay? After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward will be very great. But Abram said, O Lord, what will you give me? For I continue childless. In the air of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. And then he said to him, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness. Genesis 15 is a conversation between God and Abram. And God initiates that conversation. This is his doing, not Abram's. And so already we begin to see that God is acting. He's acting. He's taking the initiative. But this conversation illustrates three qualities about the act of God when it comes to justification, okay? That's our outline for tonight. Three qualities about the act of God. When God chooses chooses to act, what's it like? What does it look like? Well, first of all, it's unlimited in power. It's unlimited in power. Look again at verse verse 1. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram. I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. God makes a bold statement to Abram. He says, don't be afraid, Abram. I'm your shield. Think of me as your shield. That's me. Now, that might sound a little strange, right? Is God literally a shield? Is he like, can you grab him and use him as like a mobile force field or something like that? No, you can't do that, right? God's invisible. That's not what he's saying. This is a metaphor. This is what it's describing God's power to protect. Back in those days, shields were, shields were like the difference between life and death. You needed a shield on the battlefield or else you were going to die. Like that's pretty much, it was game over for you. So I mean, imagine playing paintball without a mask. Like that's, that's pretty ridiculous, right? It might be fun for the first five minutes, but wait until you get a paintball shot in the eye. Like, it's, it's going to be game over for you, right? No more playing paintball. Well, this shield business God speaks of didn't just come out of nowhere. It was designed to communicate to Abram, I am your protection. You can't survive without me. And there's a reason why God uses this idea of a shield 
it actually has to do with what what happened in chapter 14. Um, look back at chapter 14, verse 1. This is really interesting. In the days of Amraphel, uh, king of Shinar, Ariok, king of Elisar, Kedor, Alamar, however you pronounce that. It's a big name, right? King of Alam, Tidal, king of Goyim. These kings made war with Bera, king of Sodom, Bersha, king of Gomorrah, Shinab, king of Adma, Shemeber, king of Zeboim, and the king of Bela, that is Zoyar. Okay, what's going on here? This war, it, there's a war between kings that's going on. And it kind of reminds me of Captain America Civil War. If you guys are familiar with that movie, you know, six superheroes team up against six other superheroes, and they go to battle. It's like, you know, epic showdown. That's kind of what's going on here. Four kings go up against five kings, and they're battling it out, okay? And it's kind of one of those fights where if you're a civilian, you don't want to be caught in the middle of it, right? Like, it's fun to watch it on the screen, to watch six superheroes go up against six superheroes, but imagine if you were there in the middle of that battle. Do you really want to be right directly in the middle of, you know, Iron Man shooting his, his lasers and stuff like that, and Vision shooting, like, his laser out of his head? And, you know, I don't know, like, this, you know, the Scarlet Witch doing whatever she does, you know, it's like, you don't want to do that. Like, it doesn't, like, that's not going to be helpful. You want to stand away at a distance. You don't want to be caught up in the middle of that. Well, jump down to verse 10, because it's a, a civilian gets caught up in the middle of this, okay? Now, the Valley of Sidim was full of bitumen pits, and as the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah fled, some fell into them, and the rest fled to the hill country. So the enemy took all the possessions of Sodom and Gomorrah and all their provisions, and they went their way. And they also took Lot, the son of Abram's brother, who was dwelling in Sodom, and his possessions, and they went their way. So Lot, Abram's nephew, gets uh, kidnapped by some of these kings here, okay? Gets caught up in the battle. And this gets Abram really mad. And he, he chases with his army, he chases down these kings... And he kills all these kings, and he rescues back Lot. It's crazy. Like, a, like Abram's like some, some kind of like superhero. Like he just goes and rescues Lot and everything like that. With he does it with like only like three hundred people too. It's like it's crazy. He's he's insane. It's 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 beast mode at its finest. Okay. But here's the thing. Genesis fifteen one comes right on the heels of this battle, and God says, Abram, I know you think you're pretty hot stuff. But don't forget, I'm your shield. I'm your shield. I'm the one who helped you win that battle. It was me. I did it for you. You didn't do anything, really. That victory actually belongs to me because I'm the one who's making you successful in everything that you do. My power is unlimited in its scope. It can take out an army of nine kings and all their soldiers with just you and 300 men. That's amazing. That's unlimited power, but it only came from God himself. That's the nature of God's work in justification, too. It's unlimited in power. His effort's unlimited in power and capability. There's nothing God's incapable of, and so there's certainly nothing God's incapable of when it comes to this doctrine of justification. So what am I talking about? What am I talking about? What does this look like for justification? There's no sinner too far gone whom God can't save. 
There's no person so far lost whom God can't find. There's no individual so messed up God can't restore. Whatever God does to rescue a wayward soul, it's accomplished with a lot of firepower. Unlimited firepower. Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Have you ever thought about salvation as power? It is. It's powerful. It's amazingly powerful. And we'll see why as this week goes along. 1 Corinthians 1.18, For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. When God justifies, he plumbs the depths of hell, and he snatches up wicked souls that are otherwise helplessly doomed for destruction. Genesis 15.1 illustrates for us how limitless God's power is. God can move, literally, heaven and earth to accomplish his purposes. And that's not just a saying, that's a fact, that's a reality. That's a nature of how God's act, God acts in justification. His actions are unlimited in power. But two, two, second, it's also unaccompanied by you. It's unaccompanied by you. Unaccompanied spelled U-N-A-C-C-O-M-P-A-N-I-E-D. Unaccompanied. And it basically just means you don't have any part with it. You don't have anything to do with it. Justification is unaccompanied by you. It's not just unlimited power. It's also you have no part with it. You don't get to help at all. Perhaps Abram might have been tempted to think, yeah, I know God's my shield, but I mean, come on, I took out those bad guys, right? I'm pretty good, right? I must have contributed something to this. No. God is behind the scenes doing everything. What does Genesis 15, chapter, verse 2 say? Look at this. It says, But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I am childless, and the heir of my house is Eliezer Damascus. Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my house will be my heir. Earlier in Genesis, God promised Abram uh, his wife would give him a son, and that son would be the father of a whole nation. So when God says to Abram, I'm your shield, your reward will be huge, Abram's looking around saying, well, okay, but how am I going to get there? I don't have any descendants to actually get a, a reward that's like, like nation-sized. I don't have a son. Abram recognizes this isn't something that he can control. It's out of his control. And so he pleads to God and he says, help me, where's my son? He knows his future is entirely in God's hands, so he kind of complains to God here. He says, you need to give me a son. You need to give me offspring. And so Abram knows God must give him a son. God must do this work. There's nothing that he can do to jumpstart it himself. There's nothing he can do to make this happen on his own. He must rely on God's power. So Abram's a little scared here, and he's a little uncertain. But you can see in verses 2 and 3, despite that, he doesn't take matters into his own hands. He says, God, I know you must act. It must be something that I can't do. It must be something you do alone. Alone. And that's the nature of God's work in justification as well. His work's unaccompanied by you. No matter how hard you try, you can't change your legal situation before God. You can't stand up in a courtroom and just say, okay, this has been really fun. 
I'm just going to leave now. Bye. And you just kind of get up and leave. You can't do that in court, right? You're obligated to be there. You're stuck because that's court. You've been, you know, sent it, or so you've been called before the trial there to, to, and they're going to figure it out until one way or another, either you're going to be found guilty or not guilty. And there's no measure of good works that you can do to change the crime that puts you there in the first place. You can't be like, okay, I'm just going to do good works now, and that'll kind of like absolve my crime. No. They have to try you and find you as guilty or not guilty, and then you must pay the crime. And so you can't do anything to get out of God's court either. You're stuck. You need God to act on your behalf. You can't do anything for yourself. He's the judge. He decides your fate. And this is so important to keep in mind because it makes the gospel such soothing words to hear. Ephesians 2.8 For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is a gift of God. It's not a result of works that no one may boast. You couldn't do anything to save yourself. Nothing. Nothing. Nothing means nothing. Nothing is a zero with both ends removed. That's nothing, okay? You can't do anything. And that's wonderful. Because if you tried to do anything, you'd fail. There's, you, you'd absolutely fail. Because you don't have God's unlimited power to save you. Only God can save you. And so, that's the crazy, awesome thing behind this big concept called God's justification. You can't do anything. It's all a work of God. But third, it's also undeniably proven to work. It's undeniably proven to work. God's act of justification is undeniably proven to work. If the power behind God's work is, me is beyond measure and you can't do anything to mess it up, then you can count on God to do the job. You can't. Because if God's doing it, then you know it's going to happen, right? Has God ever failed in anything that he's ever done? No, he hasn't, right? Genesis 15.4, look at this. This is how he proves it. He says, And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and said, this man shall not be your heir, your own son shall be your heir. And then he brought him outside, and this is how he proves it. He says, look toward heaven and number the stars if you are able to number them. Then he said to them, so shall your offspring be. Abram's frustrated because he doesn't see God working just yet, but God doesn't just leave Abraham guessing. He takes him outside, and he says, look at the stars. Look at the stars. One of the reasons why I like a place like Thousand Pines is because when you go outside in just a few minutes here, you'll be able to see a bunch of stars, right? And you'll be able to see them better than when you're in Bakersfield or when you're in L.A. because you don't have all the lights of the city that drown out the light of the stars, right? You see so many stars. Do you know how many stars are in the universe? How many stars are there? Do you know? A lot, right? Infinite? Yeah, there could be infinite. We don't know, honestly, for sure. Here's how much we do know. This is a statistic gathered from the University of California, Santa Barbara. There are about 100 billion stars just in our Milky Way galaxy. 100 billion, okay? How many galaxies are there? 10 billion. 10 billion galaxies. So what's 10 billion multiplied by 100 billion? 100 billion 
trillion stars. If you're like, what's that? One followed by 21 zeros. And if you're like, I don't understand that, okay? Let me give you an example. Imagine every star in the known universe was the size of a marble, okay? And you took all these stars and you dumped them on planet Earth. So they filled every crevice across the planet, okay? What would happen? If you dumped all the stars here, the size of a marble, they would stack the Earth 315 miles high. That's the, that's the tippy-top height of the Earth's atmosphere, okay? It would fill the entire atmosphere of the Earth. That's crazy. That's so many stars, right? I mean, and that's just if the stars are the size of a marble. But each star is like closer to the size of our sun. So we're talking about a lot of stars and a lot of big stars, right? Huge. I mean, that's amazing. God created every single one of those stars. Every single one of those. So now jump back to this illustration here that God is giving to Abram. He says, as many stars are out there, so will be your descendants. Wow, that's a lot of children, you know, Abe. You're going to have a lot of babies one day, you know. That's like incalculable, right? Well, that's not exactly what God's talking about. He's just basically saying you won't be able to count the number of children that you have in the future. Your nation is going to be huge. But there's something else to this. He also showing Abram how reliable he is to do what he has promised. How reliable he is. It's kind of a greater to lesser argument. The greater, bigger, harder thing for God to do is create all those stars. So hard to create those, right? Can you create a billion trillion stars? No, no. But what's the lesser thing to do? Maybe create a billion trillion humans. It's not as bad, right? Because they're smaller, right? God says, I've done this before. Abram, I can do this again. I know you think that it looks hard and you don't have a son yet and things like that. But guess what? I've done this before. In an instant, in one day, I created a billion trillion stars at least, if not more than that. Wow. Yes, God, you can do this again. Your act of uh, that you do in this world is undeniably proven to work. God shows time and time again that he can do what he says he can do, right? And that's the nature of God's justification. His works, his efforts, undeniably proven to work because he has, he's got a great track record, right? He created everything in this world. He can solve the problems of this world. He can solve sin. He can solve death. Because he's created everything. Everything. He's proven he can. everything works. The Bible's full of support after support, proof after proof, evidence after evidence that God says something and it happens. Psalm 115.3 Our God is in heaven. Whatever he's pleased with, he does. Isaiah 55.9 So will my word go forth from my mouth I will not be, I will now return to be empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the matter which I sent it. When God acts, he does so with unlimited power. When God acts, he does so without your help, unaccompanied by you. And when God acts, it's undeniably proven to work. And that includes the doctrine of justification. 
your ticket to salvation. It's undeniably proven to work. Many people wonder, but what if I'm not saved? What if I'm not saved? Maybe I can lose my salvation. How do I know God can not only save me, but keep me saved? God proves time and time again that it, if he says it works, then it works. Listen to Jesus in John 10, 29. My father who has given them to me is greater than all. Greater than all. He's unlimited power. And therefore, no one is able to snatch them out of my hand. No one. Once you are saved, you are saved because God keeps you locked in his grasp. That's, that's awesome. It's undeniably proven to work. And so, there's not a single experience in this life that can separate you from the love of Christ if God's the one who went to bat for you. Just like Romans 8, 8, 38, it says, right? For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter if it's tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword. It doesn't matter if it's any experience in life. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. It doesn't matter if it's any person in this world, whether it's, uh, you know, death or life, uh, you know, people who have the power to take your life or to give you life. It doesn't matter if it's the supernatural powers in this world or the natural powers in this world, like angels or, or rulers. It doesn't matter if it's someone who's powerful now or someone who's going to be powerful in the future, things present or things to come. It doesn't matter if it's, you know, things in the celestial realm or things in the terrestrial realm. Neither height nor depth, nothing can separate you from the love of God. And so, our story Abram of, of Abram here teaches us three characteristics about justification as an act of God. It's an act of God that's unlimited in power. It's an act of God that's unaccompanied by you. And it's an act of God that's undeniably proven to work. But, but, I don't know about you, but when I read through Genesis 15, 1 through 5, I didn't see anything about justification. Did you see the word justification in there? No, right? I didn't see anything. It just had to do with, you know, there was just like a bunch of, you know, stars, and there was a sun, and there's a shield. That's all I got. That's all I see it, right? Where's justification in all this? Well, we don't get that until verse 6. Verse 6. This is the big verse. This is the important one, okay? So pay attention and read verse 6 with me, okay? It says, And Abram believed the Lord, and the Lord counted it to Abram as righteousness. This is the first place in the Bible where we get the doctrine of justification clearly defined. What is it? What is justification? It's an act of God, yes, we've seen that. But it's an act of God to declare you right, to declare you righteous. Abram believed God, and God counted Abram's belief, his faith, as righteousness. He declared Abram righteous through his faith. God didn't make Abram righteous. Uh, it's not like he transformed him all of a sudden into a good person who never ever sins anymore. That's not what this is saying. Abram was seen as righteous before God. He was, he was before God in, 
and considered righteous even though he wasn't. Abram wasn't a righteous person. He sinned. He was a sinner just like you and I were. But God said, I see you now as righteous even though you're not. That's justification. It's declaring someone righteous. It's like if you were in court and the judge said, even though you were completely guilty, you did the crime, and even though the evidence is so clear that you did it, the judge says, you are not guilty. You're not guilty. How's that possible? How's that possible? That's justification. You're not guilty. And there's a reason why you're declared not guilty, but we're not going to look at that tonight. We're going to look at that tomorrow. But the story of Abram here sets the pattern for how you can be declared right before God. It kind of paves the way for how you can be justified before God. It all starts with an act of God alone. It's an act of God alone. Every single person in the world, every single person in this room is on trial before God. Every single one of you. You're on trial before God. You can't escape it. You can't evade it. You can't trick the system. You can't outsmart God. You can't. Every single person must go on trial before the supreme judge of the universe. And that's a daunting thing to think about. But that's why we need what we call justification. Without justification, you and I can't be saved. We can't be right before God. It's impossible. But with justification, you, like Abram, can hear such reassuring words, not guilty. Not guilty. Father, we thank you so much that there is the opportunity of justification. And I pray, Father, that as we have seen that it is an entirely an act of you, it is your work, it is your effort that you do for us. I pray, Father, that you would help us to submit ourselves in faith to that work and that you would help us to believe that it is all your work, it is all your doing, there's nothing we contribute to this. May we, Father, embrace that so that we can be justified before you and we won't have to experience the judgment that we, that we deserve, the fires of hell, Lord, but that we can experience the joys of heaven. Father, thank you so much for justification. Thank you so much for how you've made that possible. Bless our time now. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.